And I just felt, I felt so much peace and like I was doing exactly what I needed to do to keep the story going, to keep art and theater a priority because that's what he would have done. Welcome to Jesus and Juliet. I am here with another one of my coworkers. Um, I have really awesome coworkers, apparently, <laughs> Malaka Falk, and uh, she's joined me today. And we work really closely together, don't we? Yes, a lot. Yes. <laughs> a lot. A lot. Um, tell us what you do currently. Currently, well, I have many hats at Veritas, but um, my favorite is eighth grade drama teacher. And um, then I also teach some high school film classes and I am the general electives department head, which means anything that is not a fine arts or an athletic uh, elective, that's me. That's you. And um, what have, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Editing. This, this quarantine this crazy. By the way, we yeah. are in the middle of the quarantine. So if you knew I this is this is just about when things are going crazy. I'm gonna go ahead and share the date because I just I never usually do that, but I think it'd be really interesting to go back and listen to. Today is March 16th, 2020. So um we are right in the midst of closures and all of that kind of stuff happening, which is interesting because we do teach fine arts and we, you know, and I, I'm the fine arts department head. And so it's, um, it's interesting to have to plan out these courses to potentially be done online. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is one of the mo more difficult jobs. <laughs> um, so let's go ahead and, and you also have other hats outside of Veritas. What are they? Right. Um, well, I'm kind of active in the local theater. I try to audition for several things a year and, um, I've got another audition coming up that was delayed for two weeks because oh. all of, all of the current shows have been delayed for two weeks. So the opening of this show has been delayed for two weeks. So the auditions have been delayed for two weeks. Oh my so very interesting times here. But, um, but I also try to, I try to do consulting, you know, mm -hmm. creative consulting with some of the other, um, theater companies in town. I'm on the board of Austin acting. Yay. Yay. <laughs> Shameless plug. Um, so yeah. It's yeah. Not just Malaka is extremely involved in our community theater. Um, she's been in shows in Austin and Wimberley. And I, first of all, want to applaud you <laughs> because I feel like you're way more involved than I am. <laughs> um, and there's something, I don't know, I get really excited every time you're in a show because I just feel like, man, is there something on the other side of having kids? Like, could I potentially for shows? <laughs> like, right now, I just cannot imagine. I directed at Emily Ann. Um, she was in a show at, at Emily Ann in Wimberley, and I 
directed a show at Emily Ann and Wimberley when Jude was one and it killed me. It was so hard to, and I was working full time too. Um, so I, yes, I cannot wait, um, to, I mean, <laughs> I can't wait for my kids to grow up. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I know it's a double-edged sword. You're like, oh, I want them to stay babies forever. And then like, when am I going to have a life again? Right. <laughs> yeah. When can I be me? We have talked a little bit, but not um, really in depth about your theater career. And, um, and I also want to hear your faith journey. And so I'm going to go ahead and let you have the floor and just um, tell that. I know that sometimes they are together and sometimes they are separate. Um, I think that you started theater really young. So I'm going to assume that they kind of intersect a little bit sooner, but maybe not. Um, but go ahead and just lead us through that um, kind of story. Um, well, my parents were both in theater. They met at Texas Tech when they were both theater majors. And um, so after that, after they got married, dad, let's see, dad got a job in South Carolina for like a year or something, teaching theater at a place called Converse College. And while he was there, I was born. So I am not a native Texan. Um, I was born in South Carolina. And then he moved, or they moved to Georgia so that he could start his PhD. He wanted to be a theater professor. And we were there until I was about three. And um, fun fact, one of the things that he did for his PhD was he had to take costuming courses, obviously, and learn how to make a pattern from scratch. And so one of his, one of his uh, final projects was a project where he had to make a costume for male, female, and child. So he used us, his little family, as the models for these costumes Aww. and they were so terrible no I mean they were well put together they I mean I think he got a good grade on them I don't know but we took a picture in them and you can see that picture not only on the awkward family photos website but we were featured on a card a greeting card from them and we are in the awkward family photos game Oh my goodness. That is so funny. Okay. So if you go to awkwardfamilyphotos.com and search for get into the groovy, that's that my family. Awesome. I'm going to put that in our group too. We have a Jesus and Juliet group. So I'm going to post that in the group. That's super, do. super cool. It's so funny. And another fun fact about that picture we didn't know at the time that all four of us were in the picture. I have a little brother. Oh, that's I know. really sweet. That's so, sweet. and I look very mad in the picture. And it's because, and I remember this very clearly. It's because when he was fitting this to me, I remember very clearly he accidentally stuck me with a pen. <laughs> so from that moment on, I associated that outfit with pain. Yeah. So I didn't want to put it on. And uh, so <laughs> I look very petulant. That's funny. You're like, this outfit's awful. Yeah. Well, it is pretty awful. Yeah. 
but um but it's awful it was like okay if I was three years old that was 1971 and I think I was actually just two so it was probably 70 but and it's very 70s oh my heavens I can't wait to see it it's pretty funny so um he I don't know the full story. They never told me the full story, but he had a falling out with his professors there. So he did not get his PhD from there. And we moved to Lubbock. And um, because that's where all my relatives are from. And he became the managing director of the Lubbock, Lubbock Civic Theater. And he was there until I was in second grade. And then the Lubbock Civic Theater folded and we moved to Plainview, which is near Lubbock. And he got a job at Wayland Baptist University teaching, teaching theater. And we stayed there until I was a freshman in high school. And through the course of that, my parents also helped revive the Plainview Civic Theater. And that's where I started my onstage experience. Before then, I was just like the backstage theater brat that ran around and knew not to go on stage during rehearsals, but played in the costume loft and, you know, played in the shadows and sat and watched the rehearsals when it was fun. I remember when my dad did Dracula, he borrowed one of my toy bats and I had to watch every scene that the toy bat was in to make sure that it was okay and that I got it back. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. <laughs> that, so, sounds, that sounds so much like my kids too, at rehearsals. Uh-huh. They've seen so many onstage deaths. They oh yeah. Would, and then for Guys and Dolls, they would wait and Briggs would always, when he, in Guys and Dolls, he would always throw the dice and they would like try to catch the dice. <laughs> They would try to catch the dice like during the show and they would be like, got it. And I'm like, stop, what are you doing? (laughs) It was really, really funny, but yeah. Awesome. That's yeah. So, and then that's also where I started my, my onstage um, career. When I was in second grade, dad did a production of South Pacific and um, I got to play the little girl. And I, I think I had two scenes and, um, and I was hooked. I mean, wow. you step on stage one time, if it's mm-hmm. for you, you know, right. that's it. Yeah. And so I was so, I was so into it and loved it so much and would beg to go to rehearsals with him and everything. When I was 10, he actually chose to do Miracle Worker and cast me as Helen Keller. And that was, after that, I was doomed. Yeah. So (laughs) that's a pretty awesome part. That is an awesome part. Yeah. How old were you? I was 10. Oh yeah. You were 10. Yeah, I was 10. And then the next year when I I was- I mean, what a powerful role to play at 10. I know. And at the time, this is really cool. At the time, my aunt, my dad's sister was dating a man who was legally blind he could see like really close up, but he was legally blind. So he worked with me to, to show me, to coach me how to walk blind. And that was amazing. And I still use that sometimes when like 
it's dark. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I can't see. I've got to walk blind. Yeah. And, uh, and it works. Wow. Yeah. So that was, that was just invaluable. And, um, and then the next year, the Plainview Civic Theater did a production of Bad Seed and cast me as the little murderous girl. Yeah. Wow. And, um, yeah. So that was fun. So you were doing community theater mm -hmm. at a very young age too. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, did things like I, I was in Fiddler on the Roof and, uh, oh, Sound of Music. Mm -hmm. I got to do Sound of Music. I, was, I played Louisa when I was 13. And then in high school, I played Liesl. Yeah. Which was fun. Wow. Because I was 16. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and I got to sing this song. Um, so yeah, I've just been doing it forever. I started college as a theater major. Yeah. And my dad, this was when he had left play, uh, Wayland Baptist University and he went to Lamar University in Beaumont. And um, so I was there for two years and they seriously cut the department because this was in the late 80s when the oil bust happened mm -hmm. and that's all oil money down mm -hmm. there so they cut the department and so they cut my dad's position yeah. so I stayed a year after his position was cut and then I took a gap year because I just didn't know what I was going to do right so let's stop here and okay. go back and just briefly talk about your faith journey up until that point okay um well both my parents are christians um and i was i was raised basically in a christian family we were we were not we were a little bit deeper than cultural christians i mean we didn't we didn't skip sunday school or service or anything like that unless we were out of town, you know, we were, we went other than mm -hmm. Christmas and Easter, right. you know? Yeah. Um, and I would see my, <clears throat> excuse me, I would see my mom reading the Bible. Um, so we, we were a faith-based family, but they were very loose about making us go. They, I think they took a very, liberal view of well you need to discover it yourself right so they didn't really push for us to go to youth groups so i never went to youth group um, i was always in shows always had rehearsal right um and uh so i didn't feel i didn't feel like it was mine does that make sense yeah um yeah. i went i enjoyed it right but, um, but it was just something I did. Right. And then when I was 12, my aunt, who's my dad's sister was really, really, she had had a revival and she was really on fire and she just talked to me about Jesus all summer. <laughs> and I, I believe that is when I really crossed over to having a saving faith because I really, really did. I was thinking about it one day and I was just brought to my knees mm -hmm. by just the grace and just mm -hmm. the love. And so I think at that point I had saving grace, but I didn't have any discipleship 
because she lived in Lubbock. We lived in Plainview. I didn't tell anyone that I had this epiphany. And so I I was just kind of floundering. And a lot of the information that I got or that I interpreted was very wrong. It was like, you sin, you go to hell. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. and yeah, Jesus might forgive you. But if you sin after you ask forgiveness, you start all over again. Yeah. You know, (laughs) I I know that that's like, yeah. And, and my mother was Catholic. My dad was Presbyterian. My mother was Catholic. So they actually went to different churches. She would come to church with us on the big days, but we were kind of split. So I wasn't getting a full doctrine of any different denomination. I was just kind of getting like, God is love and he'll forgive your sins. But I kept you know, saying, I'm sorry about this. And I confess this and I'm sure I forgot one. Yeah. And I remember praying, God, just forgive me of all of my sins in the past and anything I'm going to do. Yeah. <laughs> and I kept doing that, not knowing that that's pretty much grace. Right. You know? Right. So when I got to college and really, really started questioning, I felt like in a void or just floating. I didn't have anybody I could go to to ask the tough questions. And so in college, I was like exploring new age and, you know, exploring my own autonomous, well, if it feels good, do it, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And I kind of flirted with agnosticism. I never flirted with atheism, mm-hmm. but kind of flirted with agnosticism. But at the end of every day, I prayed. Right. Yeah. And that started to kind of stick with me like, okay at the end of every day, you really do believe this. Right. So interestingly enough, the thing that the event that really started bringing me back, (laughs) of course it was art. Of course it was a performance. I went to go see the touring company of Jesus Christ Superstar. And it had the two leads from the movie. It had the Jesus from the movie mm-hmm. and it had Judas from the movie. So yeah, Carl Anderson and Whoa. Ted Neely were in it. Wow. And I was, well, it's one of my favorite musicals anyway. I love the movie. I love that movie. The, oh, no, I it? don't love movies from uh, shows. I try not to watch them, but I love that movie. It's so yeah. good. And what I didn't know at the time was that Ted Neely, who played Jesus, is a Christian and he's a strong Christian. And he only agreed to come back to the touring company if they added an ascension. Because at the end of the movie and at the end of the stage show, basically it's the crucifixion, that's it. Right. And so at the end of the show, everything dies down, everything gets quiet. And they flew him off the cross up into the rafters. Yes. Yeah. So it was really powerful. And then I knew the guy who was the head of the sound at the Bass Concert Hall. 
Yeah. And he got me backstage and I got to meet Ted Neely. <sighs> and he takes that role seriously because he knows that it is powerful. So he met with every person who wanted to talk to him, looked him in the eye, took him by the hands, you know, I'm and I was cry. just like, I know it was powerful. Oh my Whereas gosh. Carl Anderson was like, I've got some place to be here. I'll sign this. I gotta go. Bye. Right. And Ted Neely was like, wow. yeah. And he had this peace about him. And I know, you know, I, I knew it of then. I know it of now not to equate him with Jesus, but right. I believe that God was working through him. Right. And he yeah. knew it. Yeah. So now I want to go watch that movie. I know. <laughs> and so that got me thinking, not just about the gospel, but I wanted to know about the culture of the time and how accurate a lot of the story was and about, well, why was he persecuted? Why was he killed? It's not just the story, but you know, what was the climate? Because they, in the movie, you know, they have, it, it's very militaristic, you know, in the movie they have uh, Judas wearing, well, no, he's not wearing camo. That's another show that I saw, uh, another version of it that I saw. But they do have planes that fly overhead. You know, they emphasize the the guards and, how the guards are everywhere, the Romans are everywhere. And I was like, what exactly is this? And so I started studying the culture of it. And it just brought me to a place where it was like, yeah, this, this man lived and he died. And I got to figure out what this actually means. And about that time, I met the man who would become my husband who had just given his life to Christ. So of course he was on fire and he was answering all my questions. Oh, wow. And I was talking to him and, and he was being discipled by this guy who was like, well, if she's not a Christian, you have to break up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, don't listen to him. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I told him, I said at one point, cause he's like, you know, we can't be together if we're not, both believers, which made me mad, number one. But number two, I was like, I'm asking all these questions. You would pull the plug if I'm asking questions. I haven't put up a, a bar or a wall or something. And I even told him one time we were having like this discussion. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, you know, it's not an if, it's a when. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I knew that. Right. I knew I just needed all yep. of my questions answered. Yep. And, um, and so he was kind of like, okay. Right. And yeah, one night again, it got a little heated and he said, okay, the bottom line is just, do you believe that Jesus died for our sins? And I said, yes. And then we both <laughs> looked at each other and I'm like, yeah, I really do. And so we <laughs> prayed and cried yeah. and all that. And so there we go. I know. <laughs> That's super sweet. I love yes. that. I know. So when you were talking about your theater journey, you said that you kind of had a rough time. You ended up taking a gap year. Mm -hmm. And um, is that, when did you meet your husband then? Oh, it wasn't until after college. 
So um, it's after college. Right. And okay. the reason I, the reason I quit college the first time when I was at Lamar is that we had a very dysfunctional department. Mm-hmm. We had amazingly talented people, mm-hmm. but this is, this is the late eighties and there's, there was not a lot of talk about like mental illness and mm-hmm. getting help and coming out about these mental illnesses. So we unfortunately had several people in the department who were, I believe now, who were clinically depressed. Mm -hmm. And through no fault of their own, just because this is an illness and it is, if it's left undiagnosed, it can be just insidious. They were bringing everybody down with them. Mm-hmm. And I could feel myself, I'm normally a pretty optimistic and happy person. And I would come in to the grade room where everybody hung out between classes and then be like, Hey, and everybody would be shut up, you know? Mm. And they didn't, it was like, they didn't want to have a cheerful person around. Right. And I see now that it was the mental illness. And just for the record, I am friends with most of these people on Facebook now and they have gotten help and they are delightful. Right. Um, but there was a lot, there was a, <laughs> there was a lot of drama in the drama department. <laughs> there always is. <laughs> as much as we try to be like, we're not dramatic. That's acting. We're like, no, we are. No, we are. <laughs> no, there is. <laughs> and it was just a lot to take. And And I tend to, if, you know, if my friend's hurting, I tend to want to help and I couldn't. Yeah. So I was taking a lot of that on myself. And, um, so I just thought the best thing for me would be to step away. Mm -hmm. And so I stepped away for about a year. And then as I was trying to decide what I was going to do and where I was going to go, I just got this again, epiphany. And at that time I wasn't walking with the Lord. I know it was the Lord talking to me, Mm -hmm. but I just went, Oh, I thought of something. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was very clear. It was go to UT and get a degree in film. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea why I'd always loved movies, um, and been fascinated by the process. And I was just like, Oh, okay. I guess I'm doing that. And it was, it was definitely from God because everything just fell into place. Mm -hmm. And of course, again, this is the late eighties. It's like, I applied to UT, got in like that, (laughs) transferred, no problem. Got into all the classes I needed. I found my, my bill, my semester bill, my tuition for one of my semesters. You're going to (laughs) die. It was less than $600. Whoa. That's wild. <laughs> that is. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I remember complaining about like the student union fee because it was maybe, you know, $10. <laughs> I'm never going to use that. I'm going to be doing film all the time. Why do oh I need to pay gosh. $10? That's almost painful to hear. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. <laughs> Speaking as a person with a kid in college. Yes. Yeah. So I came to UT. I got my degree in radio, TV, film. The last semester I was in college, I was back on stage. So 
<laughs> I have not really used my degree in film, um, but I'm glad I got it. And, um, but yeah, I, uh, I went back on stage. I auditioned for, this was in like January of 92 and I graduated May of 92. But in January of 92, I graduated, or I auditioned for the traveling cast of Esther Spotleaks and I got in. So mm. I stayed in town and just got a, a, you know, just a job. Yeah. Got a day job and then traveled with, wrote for and traveled with the cast of Esther's Follies for three years. Two so and a half years. For those who don't know, to describe what Esther's Follies is, because that's a very, isn't that a, that's an Austin thing. Oh yeah. Yes, it's, for sure. It's an it's, Austin yes. legend yes. institution. It's like Saturday Night Live on mm -hmm. Sixth Street. People are taken for Saturday Night Live from there, aren't they? Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. There have been a couple. Um, Oh, I can't remember her last name, but I believe her first name is Nicole, and she was on SNL for one year, but then she was on Master of None for like two years, okay. two seasons, but she's from Esther's, um, but they're just like, they're a sketch comedy show, um, they're on 6th Street, they have a theater that's a storefront, so they have curtains that close so you can't see the street, but then there are some sketches that they open the curtains and they incorporate the people who are walking down the street oh, which is fun. really funny mm -hmm. and a lot of people know that so they mug for it and um <laughs> it's really and then they use it too you know they'll use it they'll have their actors go back and forth and do right something. right um, but yeah i the and they had an extra traveling cast for years because they got asked to do corporate events as their entertainment right. and they couldn't shut down sixth street. So they needed a different cast. Yeah. So we would, we would use a lot of their stock sketches, but then we would also write our own because, you know, a travel agency, they want you mm -hmm. to write some sketches based on their stuff and they would send us information. And a lot of times right. we didn't know what we were writing. Yeah. <laughs> incorporated this person's name and got right. like huge laughs and we're like yeah okay. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yay that's funny yeah. when in doubt yes <laughs> and we oh. happen to have in our cast this is really funny we happen to have in our cast um a guy who was a champion twirler mm -hmm. and um he, we found out that this woman who headed this agency that we were doing a show for was a twirler in high school so we dressed him up like her and and twirled to oh, the whole thing so they loved it oh my, oh my gosh. gosh they loved it that is so so fun yeah so where did the what kind of conflict did you have? So I know that you talked about um, being in a theater department that had a lot of toxic energy, I guess, or mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Some sort yeah. of bad energy. Um, and having that really great experience at, at Jesus Christ Superstar. But where do you feel like, the, what was the, the issue and how did that, how did you overcome that? Well, or where was there one? Like, <clears throat> was there ever a moment where you were like, you felt conflicted, I guess? Yes. 
Yes. And, um, so I remember, well, after, after Esther's Follies, I auditioned for a cover band called Rotel and the Hot Tomatoes. And I was in Rotel for four years. And that was amazing. That was an amazing thing because we were, we were a cover band, but a fun cover band, like we did 50s, 60s and 70s music. So we had wigs and costumes and we had banter that we wrote between each song. And we gigged at least twice, sometimes three and four times a weekend. So it was a lot, but it was great. And that was where I I was actually set up with my husband by one of the girls in the band. So I was only in the band for like three months before I really rededicated myself to Christ Mm -hmm. and started that journey. And my, my bandmates were great. I mean, not all of them were believers, but they were very, very sweet and very respectful, you know, would, would tone stuff down if I was around or, you know, anyway, and respectfully be like, well, you know, you need to get to bed because you're going to church tomorrow and stuff like that. So they were, I mean, that was an amazing, amazing experience. And one of the things that came out of that was just figuring out and knowing 100% when I was on stage, that's what God made me to do because I was doing it so often. It was so easy. It was easy to get up there and be with these people. It was easy to, you know, if something went wrong or if we had to change something, modify something, it was just, that was our job. We did it. We, you know, if we had to cut our set in half, it was like, okay, well, we'll do this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> if we were at a place that was outside and raining and freezing, we modified our costumes really quickly. You know, it was just, it was comfortable. And I knew I had such joy when I was on stage because I knew that that's where I was supposed to be. And about four years in, well, actually about three years in is when my husband and I started talking about, well, I was married by then, obviously. And we started talking about having kids. And I always knew when we got together and when we got married, it was just a given mutually that I would stay home with the kids for a while. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and also there's no pregnant hot tomatoes. Well, there wasn't then. There have been since. Yeah. So <laughs> they've, they've relaxed that rule. Um, these tomatoes aren't as hot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or these tomatoes are very round. Yes. Um, so, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to, to travel and be like that until I was big and huge and uncomfortable. Um, so I retired <laughs> in, um, in the spring of 99 and my husband and I decided we weren't going to try for kids for several months. We were just going to travel and enjoy being a couple that could travel on the weekends. Mm-hmm. And then, um, 
Lisette came around, my first child came around the next year in April. And then three years later, I had Asher. And staying home was fine. Um, I also, during that time, I started working at a place called Kids Acting, where I was, um, I was an office manager, but I was also a, an after-school drama coach. And we did little shows and everything. And it was great. I could still be in the scene and, you know, help kids. So the mistake that I made was when I quit kids acting to stay home, I quit kids acting when Asher was one because it was just getting too much. I had a four-year-old and a one-year-old and I just needed to be there for them. And from that point until I auditioned for Fiddler on the Roof in 2014, so from 2004, 10 years, mm-hmm. I had a huge conflict because I felt rightly that God wanted me to be home with my kids, but I felt wrongly that I couldn't still have an active role in the arts. Right. I thought it was one or the other. And I don't believe that that's true. I wish that I had spent more time in prayer and more time communicating with my husband about what I needed because there was this huge hole Mm -hmm. because I was only halfway doing what I was meant to be doing, what I was was meant to do, which is be a mom. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I've always known from being a little kid, I wanted to be a mom and I wanted to be an actress. Mm-hmm. Those were the two right. things. Yeah. So, right. And I should have realized I could do both. Right. Especially if I have a supportive partner. And I did go audition for one thing when Lisette was little and I didn't get it. And I misinterpreted that that was God saying, no, this is over. Yeah. And that's dumb. Right. Right. He created me to do this, then I should be doing it. And now also to be fair, I did do a lot for the church in terms of performing. I did like three or four years of vacation Bible school. I was like the MC and, and we did sketches and things like that. And that's fine, but it, didn't scratch the itch. And it, it was very depressing, you know, thinking I'm never going to do this again. And I was sitting and like I said, I had done some stuff. We used to do a Christmas play every year at, um, at our church and we would write it in house and, it, and it was always really, really great. And I had done it for like five years. And again, that helped scratch the itch some, Um, but it was just kind of like once a year and it wasn't that deep. It was, it was good, but it wasn't, you know, meaty. Mm -hmm. And one year we brought in, um, Leroy Ninao, um, to direct it. And I don't know if you've ever seen the gospel according to Texas. No, I haven't. It's really good. Um, he was one of the co-writers of that and it takes, the gospel 
and puts it in the old west and it's really really powerful and it's really cool wow. um so he was one of the writers and producers of that so he came in and he um he directed our christmas show and then i have no idea why he was on campus like in march on our um church campus and i was sitting in our coffee shop at church and he walked by and said hello and he said are you going to audition today and i said what are you talking about and he said there's an audition for fiddler on the roof and you should go audition i'm auditioning for tevia it'd be great if you could audition for golda and i was thinking right sure i don't know i can't do that and then it's just stuck with me so i called and i got an audition time actually for i think monday um threw something together very quickly and this was in 2014 so at that point my kids were 14 and 11 so they could be left alone mm -hmm. yeah and um so you know i i talked with my husband and he was like sure why not i think you should and so i didn't get golda i got fruma sarah which i think is so much more fun right <laughs> the ghost yeah and Leroy didn't get Tevia, he got Laser Wolf, which was my husband. I, I was Laser Wolf's dead wife. So we still got to play sibling, uh, not sibling, spouses. Right. But um, that was an amazing production. It's, it's still, the cast is still very close. We still talk yeah, all the time on I Facebook. Love, I love when that happens. I know. That, when you just have those, yeah. I love when that happens. Yeah. And, and, you know, we go and support each other and other productions and it's just, it was amazing. And I really clicked with the director. He asked me, this was for Austin Jewish Repertory Theater, AJRT. And this was Adam Roberts, who was the artistic director of AJRT at that time. And he asked me to be on the executive committee of AJRT and help with fundraisers and sing in fundraisers. And so I was very involved with AJRT for several years until Adam resigned, which was, he resigned in 18, December of 18. Um, so, and he and I have stayed in touch and we're still like trying to cook up some stuff. That's awesome. But it was so amazing because I got to meet so many people who have become um, more, more prominent in the Austin theater scene. So I see these people in productions all the time. And so I can go and help uh, support them. And they come and see me when I do stuff. And it's just, I'm back where I need to be. Right. Yeah. Like and it just feels good. Yes. And also I think it makes me a better teacher because mm -hmm. being on stage, I'm like, oh, this is, this is the coaching I need. So this is the coaching I need to give my actors and seeing it from, and even talking to, to my directors, I'm like, what, and not disrespectfully, I mean, some actors can be divas and be like, what do you mean by that? Right. What's my motivation? Mm -hmm. 
but I've been really blessed to be working with directors who will tell their vision mm-hmm. at the very beginning right? and say, this is collaborative and whatever you want to do within these parameters, let's, let's explore it. Do you think it's harder that, or maybe everyone goes through this thing, but I feel like it's a lot of, from doing the podcast and everything, it's a lot of artists, but do you think that we just want things to fit in this pretty little box? And when they don't, it's like rips us apart. You know what I mean? Like, because we want everything to be perfectly aligned and to, to always, you know, fit together like a puzzle. And when it feels hard, like it doesn't, then we, it's like we're out of sorts. And I don't know if that's an artist thing or what. I think, Yes and no. I think that the arts are often put down on the priority list. So we have to fight and claw our way to get the recognition and the resources that we need. So that can be very disheartening. Um, And that shows also that we need to be, or that we're forced to be more flexible than we would Mm -hmm. like. Right. Um, You know, I want this vision for my show. Well, we don't have the budget for that. Right. Yes, we do have to be. Yeah. Yeah. Or even, you know, people in charge going, "Mm, I don't really see that. Why? You know, (laughs) why do you need to do that? Right. Because it's art. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But then also when you have a vision and you present the vision, to <laughs> not to the higher ups, but to your collaborators. And they say, yes, but what about this? And then your box expands. Mm-hmm. I think the collaboration is amazing. Right. And the collaboration, right. when, when you say, here's my box, but we can think outside that box. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this, this last week, when I had my eighth graders doing their Midsummer Night's Dream showcase, <laughs> the night of the show, they were still saying, Ooh, what if we could do this? And I'm like, No. You're like, You got to, <laughs> you got to cut it off. It is set. You are like, done. I know. I'm like, I love that idea, but no. <laughs> and a couple and- of the kids were like, We can't do anything else now. <laughs> But I love that creativity, mm-hmm. you know, right. and, and where it's like you show the kids the box or you even show, if you're in a show with just adults, you show them the box and they say, Ooh, well, what if we expand it this way? And you're like, I never thought of that, but that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Yeah. The way that faith fits into that, do you think that it's so like, I don't feel like someone in counting not putting down accountants. I did accounting. <laughs> I feel like I never struggled with my faith in accounting. <laughs> Do you know? Yes. <laughs> Other was... than where is this money going to come from? <laughs> right. How do I tithe? I'm just kidding. But like, <laughs> there's, there's never like a struggle there with all these other things. But for some reason, it's like with art, there's always this struggle. And I feel like I'm just constantly trying to find the 
the thing that like you could tell someone that's like when you're going through this like do this you know what i mean mm -hmm. and i guess that would just be to pray and to you have to, it's trust trust god i mean yeah <laughs> well i do find that i mean with my eighth graders when i'm on campus and i'm in my role as a teacher at a christian school of course it's a lot easier mm -hmm. um when when we choose scenes or or plays or even when i'm teaching film and we teach and we choose films to watch i always look for how do i put this i look for good to triumph you know because that's our story right mm -hmm. that if there is evil if there is you know horribleness in the movie or in the play that it is dealt with mm -hmm. and that the person even if you feel sympathy for this character if they do something bad they either repent or they have the consequences right and and the evil is not glorified yeah right um now in the theater world what i try to do is i look once a week maybe once every other week at auditions coming up and if i don't know the play i'll try to read the play but I'm not going to audition for a play that glorifies evil or mm -hmm. that has anything that's gratuitous. Like, right, yeah. Not that anyone would want to see yeah. me <laughs> nude, <laughs> but if it's got nudity, you know? Right. One of the things that I look at is can my students come see this play? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. And, you know, some of it. <laughs> If it's like, uh, this play would probably be a PG-13, yeah, I'll probably do it, you right. know? But if it's gonna be a hard R, yeah, if there's a lot of language, if right. there's some, you know, questionable right. stuff going on, that doesn't have a resolution from my worldview, yeah. then I'm probably not gonna do it. Yeah. So, but I mean, I auditioned for a show called Roe, which is about Roe versus Wade. Mm -hmm. And it's a new play. The, the script was not available online. So I read a bunch of reviews because I know that there's a spectrum of, mm -hmm. of belief about right. Roe versus Wade. And I wanted to make sure that it was not skewed one way or the other. Yeah. That's I didn't want to be preached at one right. way or the other. Yeah. And I wound up auditioning because all of the reviews I had read said that this really does leave you with questions. Yeah. And, um, and so I'm really interested to see it. I got a call back, but I was not cast. Okay. Um, but from the sides that I read of the script, it looked like it looked like there could be some like stereotypical yeah. preachers, you right. know, and stuff like that. Yeah. 
but also from from some of the things that I read in in the rehearsal or the audition sides, it looked like it did bring up a lot of questions, which I think needs to happen with that particular issue. Right. You need to leave. If you're going to do something like that, you need to leave the theater not being told which way to go. Yeah. Because I think that that's one thing that art does. It, it's a reflection of life. Right. And life doesn't always have a bow mm-hmm. tied up that right. says, here you go. Yeah, exactly. So we... <laughs> this, this is where editing comes in, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if I had to plan these out hardcore, I would not do this. So I'm just like, because if I had to like write out things and scripts and stuff, like yeah. I would be a mess. But I would be like, too much work. <laughs> That's the artsy side of me. No, Done. yeah, I just want to have fun. <laughs> So one of the things that I wanted to talk about or hear, uh, not your perspective, but just hear about is a few years back, you had someone very special to you pass away. Yes. And the way that you handled that was just probably one of the most beautiful things. I mean, it just makes me cry thinking about it. (laughs) It was one of the most beautiful things that I had ever seen. And so I want you to... Um, if you need to backtrack a little bit and talk about him and then, um, move forward into, um, into the day that you told your eighth grade class. If I remember some of that, I've blocked out, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, so my dad and my mom have been the biggest theater influences on me. My dad was a theater professor um, and director, and my mom is a playwright and a theater director. Um, they both spent time on stage too. Um, so, I mean, I was a theater brat from day one. Some of the earliest pictures of me are me with my mom on a stage while dad's directing. Um, so backtracking a little bit, in 2014, my parents moved to Austin. They actually moved into their apartment opening night of Fiddler. So um, I got out of help with a move. <laughs> <laughs> Always a plus. Oh, yeah. Um, so, they, so they moved here. And that was a huge, huge blessing because my dad, for the past, like, you know, 15 years or so, has not been in great health. Um, and he started to go downhill pretty quickly once they moved here. Um, he went into the hospital the first time and we thought we were going to lose him the first time in 2016. And, and that was really rough, but he rallied and came back. And then 2017, um, he went back into the hospital and had to have emergency surgery and surgery for him. Um, anesthesia was never good. He usually took like three or four days to come out of it. And we were pretty sure that the surgery was going to kill him. Um, it didn't. 
and he came back. He, um, he had some nerve damage in his legs, so he couldn't walk. And my mom couldn't take care of him in a wheelchair, you know, get him in and out and everything. So he had to go into a nursing home. And uh, then his dementia just started to get worse and worse. And he passed away in April of 2018. Um, he was uh, five days shy of his 80th birthday. Wow. Um, so he was a huge influence in my life in terms of acting and how I teach acting. And um, I, unfortunately, I was never, I was never able to take his directing class because he was an amazing director. Um, when I was a kid, back before um, everybody had a printer and you could go down to Kinko's and get copies, um, when he would make his production books for whatever show he was directing, he would cut out, okay, this is like, you know, walking to school in the snow, both hills, both mm -hmm. ways uphill, you know, he would cut out every page of the script and then he would take typing paper and cut out a, a hole so that he could paste the script in there and have it typing paper size. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, he had, he actually had copies made up at the school somehow of the schematic of the set. So on one side of the page was the script page. The other side was the schematic of the set and he would draw it out he would draw out the blocking. Whoa. And, um, wow. yeah, I mean, he spent, he, he would spend a good two or three weeks, um, blocking the show and analyzing the show and he would go in and know exactly what he wanted. So he would pre-block. He would pre-block. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Um, but one of my jobs as a kid was to paste all of those script pages yeah. into the pages wow. with the holes with rubber cement mm -hmm. and then you know how you used to rub the rubber cement and it would get a little ball yeah. yes i i always tried to see how big i could make the ball <laughs> from the whole script yeah so i would see the script and then as he was doing his blocking i would come in and watch him do that yeah and i never took his his directing class to know exactly how he analyzed or how he tried or how he, you know, broke down the scene and he would always also break down the scenes differently than they were in the script. Right. So if you had a scene one that was seven pages long, he would probably break that down into at least two scenes. Yeah. Um, but he had everything pre-blocked. He wow. knew exactly where he wanted everybody to go. And my mom does that that too when she directs because wow. they have the same directing teacher in yeah. college yeah so I I kind of learned some of that from osmosis and I would go to rehearsal with him and watch his blocking rehearsals and um and they were intense and then he would also ask all, all these questions about character and mm -hmm. 
assign homework about character. Mm -hmm. So he was a huge, huge influence on, on the way I attack scenes and scripts. And, um, he and my mom are my biggest cheerleaders, right? They were always in any audience for any show. I think he saw the first two Midsummer yeah. showcases. Um, but, uh, and it was heartbreaking to see his mind going. Yeah. Because here's this man, he was so brilliant. I mean, he, he did all sorts of weird things with, with interpretations. There was one, I wish, I hope, I can find the script, but he broke down the script of Hamlet because he said that he saw Hamlet had a feminine side and a masculine side. Mm -hmm. So he rewrote Hamlet and called it Hamlet a montage. And you had two Hamlets. You had the female Hamlet and a male Hamlet. Yeah. And they were both like circling around Ophelia to drive her crazy. And Mm -hmm. He also had all of the players on stage and they would just come down and do their scene and go back up and sit. Yeah. And so that really, you know, just, he was just brilliant in that. So like I said, it was heartbreaking to see him lose that, but it was also kind of darkly funny because when he started losing his faculties, Mm -hmm. we would go see him in the, nursing home and he would tell us all about what he had done that day and what he had done that day was direct shows oh my gosh and he would say yeah the church across the street they asked me to come and help them with their show and I went but their set wasn't done so I had to I had to get some volunteers and they left at four, of course. And I mean, he had, he directed shows every day. Oh my goodness. And the funny thing was he would come to like a pause and we would go, so how was da da da? And he would go anyway, and then keep (laughs) keep going on about a lot of times he had to take a train to go get something or to go. And we were just like, okay. And my mom said several times, she's like, you know, I used to feel sorry that he was stuck in this nursing home, but he goes places every day. Apparently he's busy. Yeah, he was very busy. What a, like, oh my gosh, what a beautiful way to, you know what I mean? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yes, talking about going to Goodwills. I know. I went to four Goodwills. <laughs> and they didn't have anything. Yeah. And it was always funny because nobody, and all of these shows, all of these, these, you know, hallucinations, nobody was competent. Yeah. He had to save the day. <laughs> that is so, oh my God. <laughs> I was like, wow, I'm so glad you were there, dad. And he's like, yeah, me too. <laughs> Every director. (laughs) (laughs) And they didn't know their lines. So I just told them I was going to cut them. (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) 
so so yeah he passed away um april 21st of 2018 and that was the year that we did um midsummer late mm-hmm. so we did we did midsummer like what was it two weeks later i think um i only took that Monday, he passed away on a Saturday and I took that Monday off, but I came back for my classes and I honestly don't remember exactly what I told him, but, you know, I told him that number one, my dad would haunt me for the rest of my life if I canceled anything right, <laughs> and didn't give it my all. Right. And, um, and I just felt, I felt so much peace. And like, I was doing exactly what I needed to do to keep the story going, to keep art and theater a priority because that's what he would have done. Right. Yeah. And that's what it kind of felt like. I remember I knew that you were going to tell, so just so everyone knows, we do an eighth grade version of it's not even a version of midsummer it's It's two two scenes from midsummer with our eighth grade um just to give them like kind of a taste and we it's really become a tradition to do it every year this is their fifth year doing it and so that's why we talk about midsummer so much but uh, (laughs) but I remember you saying I like I need to tell them like I want to tell them and I was like okay and I went in there because I wanted to see this Um, and, and I was a mess and you were not, (laughs) I remember standing in the back and I was bawling and, and you were telling them. And I just remember thinking, oh my goodness, how full circle is this, that this, that her dad, who was so important to her and was such a influence on her for theater was such a, you know, just a huge part of her life, not just like as a dad, but also as a mentor. And now, and she's having to tell them because there, we were doing a show in like, I don't know how long it like, it was was like another week. It was like another week. And so she could not miss like rehearsals and stuff like that. And so it was, um, it just, you know, show must go on. And, and you knew the importance, you knew, yes, that your dad would be like, you better keep going. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, yeah, it just was a really great full circle moment. And I, um, I, I appreciate you talking about that because I mean, it means something to me and I didn't even know who he was. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember one of my students, like when I said that my dad had passed away, the thing she immediately said, we're going to dedicate this to him. And I just remember that. And it was just so, it was so touching that, you know, they were, they were with me. Mm-hmm. They didn't, they weren't like, Oh, this is weird. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Well, you're welcome. Um, where can people find you? Well, interestingly In enough. Your home. <laughs> we're in quarantine. my house. Yes. We're quarantine. <laughs> Or in my backyard with the dog. Um, So interestingly enough, I have been in prayer a lot this year about where I, 
where God wants to take me. And um, one of the things that keeps coming up is writing. Um, since my mom is also a big, huge influence on me and my mom is a playwright. Well, and also my brother, we haven't even talked about my brother. My brother is an animator and he has written several award-winning animated shorts. And I'm like, oh, this is obviously in my DNA. And I have been feeling the Lord pull me toward that for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and so maybe with this quarantine, I will start writing again. Right. And um, I had a blog for a while, but I stopped. <laughs> it's funny. One of the things that I used to blog about a lot was life as a mom. Mm -hmm. And when my kids started getting old enough to, when they did something, they'd turn to me and go, don't blog this. <laughs> That's when I kind of put wow. that on the back burner. <laughs> and um, so I think it's time to reassess that. I am on Twitter, on Cabin77. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.